0: This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy. This is lecture 18, entitled The Opposition to Spiritual Revelations, given in Dornach on June 12, 1923. It begins with an ellipsis. Blavatsky's works have very little to do with anthroposophy. I do not, however, want simply to characterize the history of the anthroposophical movement, but also to characterize its aspects that relate to the society. That requires the kind of background I have given you. If we want to be critical, it is of course quite easy to dismiss everything that can be said about Blavatsky by pointing to the questionable nature of some episodes in her life. I could give you any number of examples. I could tell you how within the society that took its cue from Madame Blavatsky and her spiritual life, the view gained ground that certain insights about the spiritual world became known because physical letters came from a source that did not lie in the physical world. Such documents were called the, in quotes, Mahatma letters. It then became a rather sensational affair. When evidence of all kinds of sleight of hand with sliding doors was produced. There are other such examples. But for the moment, let us take another view, ignoring everything outward and simply examining her writings. Then you will conclude that Blavatsky's works consist largely of dilettantish, muddled stuff, but that despite this, they contain material which, examined in the right way, can be understood as containing far-reaching insights into or from the spiritual world, no matter how they were acquired. That simply cannot be denied, despite the objections that are raised. This, I believe, leads to an issue of extraordinary importance and significance in the spiritual history of civilization. Why is it that at the end of the nineteenth century, Spiritual revelations appeared that merit detailed attention, even from the objective standpoint of spiritual science, if only as the basis for further investigation. Why did such revelations, that say more about the fundamental forces of the world than anything that has been discovered about its secrets through modern philosophy or other currents of thought, become accessible? That seems like a significant question. This question must be juxtaposed with another not-to-be-forgotten cultural-historical phenomenon, namely that people's ability to discriminate, their surety of judgment has suffered greatly and regressed in our time. It is easy to be deceived about this by the enormous progress that has been made, but it is precisely because individual human beings participate in the spiritual life as discerning individuals that we get some idea of the capacity our age possesses to deal with phenomena requiring the application of judgment, ellipsis. Such things have to be taken into account when taking full stock of the hostile forces opposing the intervention of spiritual movements. It is necessary to be aware of the general level of judgment applied in our time which is excessively arrogant precisely about its non-existent capacity to reach the right conclusions. It was, after all, a very characteristic event that many of the things traditionally preserved by secret societies, which were at pains to prevent them from reaching the public, should suddenly be published by a woman, Blavatsky, in a book called Isis Unveiled. Of course, people were shocked when they realized that this book contained a great deal of the material they had always kept under lock and key. These societies, I might add, were considerably more concerned about their locks and keys than is our present anthroposophical society. It was certainly not the intention of the anthroposophical society to secrete away everything contained in the lecture cycles. At a certain point I was asked to make the material which I otherwise discuss verbally accessible to a larger circle. And since there was no time to revise the lectures, they were printed as manuscripts in a form that otherwise would not have been published. Not because I did not want to publish the material, but because I did not want to publish it in this form. Furthermore, to prevent misunderstanding, There was a concern that only people who had the necessary preparation should read it. Even so, it is now possible to acquire every lecture cycle, even for the purpose of attacking us. The societies that kept specific knowledge under lock and key and made people swear oaths they would not reveal any of it made a better job of protecting these things. They knew that something special must have occurred when a book Isis Unveiled suddenly appeared that revealed something significant in the sense that we have discussed. As for the insignificant material, well, you need only go to one of the side streets in Paris and you can buy the writings of the secret societies by the lorry load. As a rule, these publications are worthless. But Isis Unveiled was not worthless. Its content was substantive enough to identify the knowledge it presented as something original, revealing ancient wisdom that had been carefully guarded until that moment. As I said, those who reacted with shock imagined that someone must have betrayed them. I have discussed this repeatedly from a variety of angles in previous lectures. But I now want rather to characterize the judgment of the world, because that is particularly relevant to the history of the movement. After all, it was not difficult to understand that someone who had come into possession of traditional knowledge might have suggested it to Blavatsky for whatever reason, and it need not have been a particularly laudable one. It would not be far from the truth to state that the betrayal occurred in one or a number of secret societies and that Blavatsky was chosen to publish the material. There was a good reason to make use of her, however, and here we come to a chapter in tracing our cultural history that is really rather peculiar. At the time, there was very little talk of a subject that is on everyone's lips today—psychoanalysis. But Blavatsky enabled people of sound judgment who came into contact with this peculiar development to experience, in a living way, something that made what has been written so far by the various leading authorities in the psychoanalytic field appear amateurish in the extreme. For what is it that psychoanalysis wishes to demonstrate? Psychoanalysis is correct in a certain sense in demonstrating that there is something in the depths of human nature, that in whatever form it exists there, can be raised into consciousness. Psychoanalysis is correct when it says there is something present in the body which raised to consciousness appears as something spiritual. It is, of course, an extremely primitive action for a psychoanalyst to raise what remains of past experience from the depths of the human psyche in this way. It is a primitive thing to raise past experience That has been assimilated with insufficient intensity to satisfy the emotional needs of a person, so that it has sunk to the bottom, as it were, and settled there as sediment, creating an unstable rather than a stable equilibrium. But once brought into consciousness, it is possible to come to terms with such experiences, thus liberating the human being from their unhealthy presence Ellipsis. Up to the 15th century or thereabouts, it was not an infrequent occurrence for visions of cosmic secrets to be triggered within human beings by some particularly characteristic physical happening. Later this came to be seen as an extremely mystical event. The tale told about Jacob Burma having a magnificent vision as he looked at a pewter bowl is admired because people do not know that up to the fifteenth century it was very common for an apparently minor stimulus to provoke in human beings tremendous visions of cosmic secrets but it became increasingly rare due to the increasing dominance of the intellect intellectualism is connected with a specific development of the brain the brain calcifies as it were and becomes hardened This cannot, of course, be demonstrated anatomically and physiologically, but it can be shown spiritually. This hardened brain simply does not permit the inner vision of human beings to rise to the surface of consciousness. And now, I have to say something extremely paradoxical, which is nevertheless true. A greater hardening of the brain took place in men, ignoring exceptions which, of course, exist both in men and women. This is not to say that this is a particular reason for female brains to celebrate, for at the end of the nineteenth century they became hard enough too, but nevertheless it was men who were ahead in terms of a more pronounced intellectualism and hardening of the brain, and that is connected with their inability to form judgments. This was exactly the same time at which the secrecy surrounding the knowledge of ancient times was still very pronounced. It became obvious that this knowledge had little effect on men. They learned it by rote as they rose through the degrees. They were not really affected by it and kept it under lock and key. But if someone wished to make this ancient wisdom flower once more, there was a special experiment one could try. This was to make a small dose of this knowledge, which one need not even necessarily have understood oneself, available to a woman whose brain might have been prepared in a special way, for Blavatsky's brain was something quite different from the brains of other 19th century women. Thus material that was otherwise dried up, old knowledge, was able to ignite, in a manner of speaking, in these female brains through the contrast with what was otherwise available as culture. It was able to stimulate Blavatsky in the same way that the psychiatrist stimulates the human psyche. By this means, she was able to find within herself what had been forgotten altogether by that section of humanity that did not belong to the secret societies and had been kept carefully under lock and key and not understood by those who did belong. In this way, what I might describe as a cultural escape valve was created which allowed this knowledge to emerge. But at the same time, there was no basis on which the knowledge could have been dealt with in a sensible manner. For Madame Blavatsky was certainly no logician, and while she was able to use her personality to reveal cosmic secrets, she was not capable of presenting these things in a form that could be justified before the modern scientific conscience, ellipsis, Let me illustrate this with an example of how difficult it is in our modern age to make oneself understood if one wants to appeal to wider, more generous powers of judgment. Ellipsis There was a period at the turn of the century in Berlin during which a number of Giordano-Bruno societies were being established, including a Giordano-Bruno League. Its membership included some really excellent people who had a thorough interest in everything contemporary that merited the concentration of one's ideas, feelings, and will. And in the abstract way in which these things happen in our age, the Giordano Bruno League also referred to the spirit. A well known figure who belonged to this league titled his inaugural lecture lecture quote, No Matter Without Spirit. Close quote. But all this lacked real perspective, because the spirit and the ideas being pursued there were fundamentally so abstract that they could not approach the reality of the world. What annoyed me particularly was that these people introduced the concept of monism at every available opportunity. This was always followed with the remark that the modern age had escaped from the dualism of the Middle Ages. The waffle about monism and the amateurish rejection of dualism annoyed me. I was annoyed by the vague pantheistic reference to the spirit, which is present, well, everywhere. The word became devoid of content. I found all that pretty hard to take. Actually, I came into conflict with the speaker immediately after that first lecture on, quote, no matter without spirit, close quote, which did not go down well at all. But then all that monistic carrying on became more and more upsetting, so I decided to tackle these people in the hope that I could at least inject some life into their powers of discernment. And since a whole series of lectures had already been devoted to tirades against the obscurantism of the Middle Ages, to the terrible dualism of scholasticism, I decided to do something to shake up their powers of judgment. I am currently accused of having been at that time a rabid disciple of Hackel. I gave a lecture on Thomas Aquinas and said, in brief, that there was no justification to refer to the Middle Ages as obscurantist specifically in respect to the dualism of Thomism and Scholasticism. As monism was being used as a catchword, I intended to show that Thomas Aquinas had been a thorough monist. It was wrong to interpret monism solely in its present materialistic sense. Everyone had to be considered a monist who saw the underlying principle of the world as a whole, as the monon, so I said that Thomas Aquinas had certainly done that, because he had naturally seen the monon in the divine unity underlying creation. One had to be clear that Thomas Aquinas had intended, on the one hand, to investigate the world through physical research and intellectual knowledge, but on the other hand, it, he had wanted to supplement this intellectual knowledge with the truths of revelation. But he had done that precisely to gain access. the unifying principle of the world. He had simply used two approaches. The worst thing for the present age would be if it could not develop sufficiently broad concepts to embrace some sort of historical perspective. In short, I wanted to inject some fluidity into their dried-out brains, but it was in vain and had a quite extraordinary effect. To begin with, it had not the slightest meaning to the members of the Giordano Bruno League. They were all Lutheran Protestants. It is appalling that, they said, we make every attempt to deal Catholicism a mortal blow, and now a member of this self-same Giordano Bruno League comes along to defend it. They had not the slightest idea what to make of it. And yet they were among the most enlightened people of their time. It is precisely through this kind of thing that one learns about the powers of discrimination. One learns, too, about the willingness to take a broadly based view of something that does not rely on theoretical formulations, but seeks to make real progress on the path to the spirit, to gain real access to the spiritual world. Whether or not we gain access to the spiritual world does not depend on whether we have this or that theory about spirit or matter but on whether we are in a position to achieve a real experience of the spiritual world. Spiritualists believe very firmly that all their actions are grounded in the spirit, but their theories are completely devoid of it. They most certainly do not lead human beings to the spirit. One can be a materialist, no less, and possess a great deal of spirit. It, too, is real spirit, even if it has lost its way. Of course this lost spirit need not be presented as something very valuable, but having got lost, deluding itself that it considers matter to be the only reality, it is still filled with more spirit than the kind of unimaginative absence of anything spiritual at all, which seeks the spirit by material means because it cannot find any trace of spirit within itself. When you look back, therefore, at the beginnings, you have to understand the great difficulty with which the revelations of the spiritual world entered the physical world in the last third of the nineteenth century. Those beginnings have to be properly understood if the whole meaning and the circumstances governing the existence of the movement are to make sense. You need to understand, above all, how serious was the intention in certain circles not to allow anything that would truly lead to the spirit to enter the public domain. There can be no doubt that the appearance of Blavatsky was likely to jolt very many people who were not to be taken lightly, and that is indeed what happened. Those people who still preserved some powers of discrimination reached the conclusion that here there was something that had its source within itself. One need only apply some healthy common sense, and it spoke for itself. But there were, nevertheless, many people whose interests would not be served by allowing this kind of stimulus to flow into the world. But it had arrived in the form of Blavatsky, who in a sense handled her own inner revelation in a naive and helpless manner. That is already evident in the style of her writings, and was influenced by much that was happening around her. Indeed, do not believe that those who wanted to ensure that the world should not accept anything of a spiritual nature had any difficulty in attaching themselves to her entourage. In a sense, she was gullible because of her naive and helpless attitude to her own inner revelations. Take the affair with the sliding doors through which the Mahatma letters were apparently inserted when in fact they had been written and pushed in by someone outside. The person who pushed them in deceived Blavatsky and the world. Then, of course, it was very easy to tell the world that she was a fraud. But do not understand, but do you not understand that Blavatsky herself could have been deceived? For she was prone to an extraordinary gullibility precisely because of the special lack of hardness, as I would describe it, of her brain. The problem is an exceedingly complicated one And demands, like everything of a true spiritual nature that enters the world in our time, a quality of discernment, a quality, a, a healthy common sense. Ellipsis, end of lecture 18.